Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Evidence-Based Therapist. Glad you guys could join us and you guys are still following along. Um, before we jump into our article, Bridger, I wanted to do some announcements. Oh, I'm in. Cool. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we talked about last week was our retreats and we have a whole slew of new therapists, a fresh batch, fresh batch. That's hard to say. It is. Um, of therapists who are taking clients for these retreats. These are awesome, awesome intensives, Mm -hmm. um, where, um, clients can come for any time from one to five days. Uh, you'll get EMDR therapy up to 15 hours is like the max. Yeah. Um, if you're doing that five day, you're doing we five. like to keep it to like three hours of therapy a day. Yep. But yeah. I have had people doing one days that are like, can we just do like a marathon? Yeah. Like five or six hours in a yeah. day. Yeah. 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 I've got some of those. Um, yeah. But in that you get to come, you stay in a beautiful space. Um, you're taking care a of you, city option or a farm option. Yes. Which yeah. Is cool. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and just as a side note, I know we mentioned this last week, but we saw, uh, it just, it blows my mind that we saw a live coyote that was like unfazed by humanity, just yeah. like as wild as could be, but as content yeah. as well. Yes. Looking majestic. Like to us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it was beautiful. Hello. It was a, it was a mystic moment. But you could stay there um, and you'll get the EMDR therapy as well as we have ancillary therapies like uh, yoga therapy, massage therapy, equine therapy, equine assisted psychotherapy. Oh, so amazing. So cool. Uh, A whole slew of different. um, That's the second time I've used that word too. slew. Um, (laughs) It's something that feels right to you. It does. does, uh, Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity there. So if you guys are interested, um, go to our website, right? Yeah, you can go to the website, which is uh, beyondhealingcenter.com, and then look at the retreats tab. Yeah. You can also just email therapy at beyondhealingcenter.com, and it'll get you connected with our admin team, and they will uh, kind of explore your interest as well as um, kind of just be thinking about a therapist that might fit well with you. Yeah. And then you'd get set up with that uh, therapist connected with them and uh, we'll do a free consultation call mm-hmm. to kind of just explore the ins and outs as well as some of the presenting issues or the things that you feel um, are, are maybe something you want to work on in the retreat. And then you will build a uh, treatment plan collaboratively that also has in it the therapies that you want to do. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do the massage therapy and the yoga therapy, with the EMDR, no horses, or if you do want to do uh, work with the horses, you have that option as well. Yeah. Um, but then when you get here, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, it's all inclusive into yep. that cost. Meals, so drinks. Meals, yep. drinks. Yep. Um, living. Yep. Living arrangements will be prepared for you and all will be kind of brought to you. So it's really just intended for you to immerse yourself in this mm-hmm. just healing environment. Yeah. And I know we don't have only therapists who listen to this podcast, but for therapists, like this opportunity can sometimes be like exactly what they need. Yeah. Um, it's, sometimes it's difficult in your own schedule to carve out time yeah, or even for in your, your own, own therapy. City, like yeah, to uh, find yeah. somebody to work with. Somebody who has the time, the space, who's willing to do it. Um, and so these are awesome opportunities for therapists. Yeah. Take care of yourself. You need it. You do um, need it. Yeah. So, which also brings me to another point with 
therapists. Mm. We are doing some awesome trainings coming up. Yes, we are. We've got our model somatic integration and processing. Yes. Um, that we're doing some trainings. Do you want to talk about yeah. what's coming up? We've got, so SIP one uh, is the first training and that training is specific to the theory of somatic integration and processing and its application in case conceptualization. So the whole uh, kind of training, the three day training, which has 21 continuing education hours through MBCC, um, that is focused on how to use SIP in case conceptualization. And so we have a training coming up um, in October, uh, which is in Tulsa, but we do have a hybrid option uh, to do virtual as well. Um, but then we also have another one here local in Springfield, uh, December 2nd through the 4th. Did I say the dates for the first one? October? I don't think I did. Uh, go Seventh, ahead and say it again. Yeah, October 7th through the 9th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but that does have hybrid option as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have one here uh, local in Springfield at our institute, uh, yes. at Beyond Healing Institute. Uh, just below our feet here yeah as oh, we're recording this so excited um and so that is december 2nd through the 4th and that has hybrid options as well and sip2 yes which is the full unveiling of the theory of somatic integration and processing is happening here at beyond healing institute november 5th through the 7th and we were just having like a brainstorm sesh on yeah. that and oh my god yeah what are you feeling so excited oh yeah, it's it's hard to put into words. Like mm. so many things where we're just like, ah, there's like our body knows just like intuitively. Teaming. We know like in therapy what is kind of working and happening, but to be like so supported by so much research yes. and then these concepts just like float together so seamlessly right. and we're just like playing with them. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. And we also have a uh, EMDR training that Melissa and Jen uh, put on here at the at Beyond Healing Institute as well, and that's happening uh, September sixteenth through the twentieth. Which I believe when this comes out, that'll be like the next week. <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's okay. If it is, hurry up, sign up. Yep, yeah. never hurry too late. Sign up, get in there. Get in there. It might be full by that time, and if that's true, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but we're recording this uh, early, so. Yeah. Yeah. It just is what it is. We know EMDR therapists that can help you through that grief. We can do nice. some tapping out. That was amazing. Good job. Speaking of help, um, oh. another thing that we're offering at BHC and BHI is consultation. That's right. So if you... For therapists. If, that's right. If you've had a moment, probably um, like I have, where Bridger says something and you're just like, oh my goodness, that is exactly what I needed to hear. Mm. Also... I could definitely use more of that. Can I hear more? Can I hear about how that could apply specifically to my clients Yeah. or things that I'm wrestling with in my practice? Um, we offer consultation. Um, so um, is that directed through the website as well? Yes. Or you can also uh, just email again. It's kind of just a general email, but um, trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Mm -hmm. Um, or the therapy one will get you connected. Yeah, way. if you just mention consultation, we'll know where to, where exactly. to plug in. Exactly, yes, and, yes. Um, that would be awesome. We love doing that. Yeah, um, and I'm doing a consultation call, just like a group call tomorrow, um, but that's not going to be relevant to the listeners here. But we do, through Patreon, our um, consultation calls that are just kind of general consultation, good ways to get connected with Beyond mm -hmm. Healing Institute and the kind of uh, work that we're doing all the time. So that's at patreon.com uh, slash beyond healing center. Oh man. 
you just set me up again Look at that. for the final announcement. And oh. thank you guys for sticking with us. Because if you want to stay connected to us more, if you like hearing our voices more, or you want to be able to ask us questions, engage in more content that we're producing kind of on a weekly basis, mm. then join our Patreon. That's right. Um, there's different levels to join, and you get different perks with those, but that's a way for you to stay in contact with us and also just to support the work that we're doing and continue kind of enlarging our circle of influence yes. so that more therapists, and this is kind of our heart, feel supported. Yes. And not isolated, disconnected from sources of help, mm. from sources of encouragement, mm. and also groundedness in things like research. Yes. And um, so if you'd like to stay connected, go to Patreon. Um, I'm going to defer to you yeah. again. Patreon.com slash Beyond Healing Center. Perfect. That's it. You'd think I know these by now. It's but, all right. But I kind of like involving you. Yeah, that's I good, appreciate that. That's a good... Just call uh, over to me. Yeah. Phone a friend. Pendulation. We're doing Ooh, it right now. Look at you. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, Caleb, we're talking about intersubjectivity today. Yes. This is... If you if you haven't yet, we did an intro to intersubjectivity last week. Yes. Um, so in the last episode. If, so, if you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to go listen to it. You don't have to, um, but because we're going to talk about the same topic, but it's a good introduction. But we are talking about an article that is, I think we all, you, me, Melissa, oh, and we should mention, Melissa's not oh, here yes, today. that's true. Um, she's doing an EMDR training. Yes, in Miami, Oklahoma in today. Miami, Oklahoma. So yes. uh, it will just be you and I. Yes. Um, but all three of us, when we were reading this article, texted, maybe scream called <laughs> down the hall. Yeah. Um, had these like very visceral experiences of like, this is amazing. Yes. Um, so the article is called The Interpersonal Neurobiology of Intersubjectivity. And it's by Alan Shore, um, who's an affect neuroscientist. Yes. Um, and it was published in April of 2021. Yes. So this is not too long ago. Hot off the press. That's right. I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah. And like the, the brevity which, with which he just like integrates so much information it's ridiculous. is amazing yeah and and shore has been doing this about yeah 30 35 years at maybe least, at yeah. least maybe closer maybe 40 50. 50 okay yeah a long time yes. he has been in this field and like producing groundbreaking research that whole time yeah starting the field of neuropsychoanalysis yes yeah which is just like First of all, that word. That is amazing. Alone. And this is yeah. something, because it's just you and me, we're going to have to be careful of not just getting trapped yeah. in one word. Yeah. But neuropsychoanalysis. Yeah. I appreciate you, like, grounding me in that. Cause, yeah. That um, wasn't me, like, that wasn't the equivalent of, like, a spray bottle. With, like, oh, a it didn't cat. feel, okay, it didn't good. feel that way. I don't yeah. want you to ever feel yeah, that no, way. Yeah, no, no, it felt like a, I know, I know where you desire to go. I appreciate that. Let's remember where we should go. For the listener's sake, so. Yes. Um, well, one of the things that I think we're just going to do, and this is just to give some framework for the listeners, is we're going to chunk this article up because there is so much. And yeah. Because some of the concepts we've probably alluded to, we've talked about in previous episodes, um, but it's going to introduce a whole lot more, lots of new words and um I think next week we're going to dive really heavy into some neurobiology and neuroanatomy. Um, neuroanatomy. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't want to cram it all in one episode. So we're going to split this up, maybe yeah. two, maybe three. 
Right. Um, and I'm going to ask Caleb for you to keep track of the sentiment, but I really think that the phrase neuropsychoanalysis can be helpful in understanding why we're breaking it up. Yeah. Because mm, this, this article fuses together the fields of neurobiology and psychoanalytic theory. Mm-hmm. Interpersonal neurobiology. That's which right. Which is like a whole nother. A whole nother thing. That's right. And yeah. affective neuroscience and just so many fields. And that's what Caleb was mentioning about. It's amazing that in 19 pages, Alan Shore put together this just incredible summary of the fields that are all included in this analysis. Yeah. 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 So, you know, the reason we're breaking it up is because psychoanalysis and its theory um, has a history that is as old as psychotherapy, um, beginning with Freud. Yeah. And that, you know, has so many meanings that we don't have time to go into today. But um, if you're familiar at all with object relations or with the, the concepts of objectivity, subjectivity, the concept of intersubjectivity, mm-hmm. all of those things come out of psychoanalytic theory and even older in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so that's on one side. Then you have this entirely other side of the spectrum of neurobiology, of interpersonal neurobiology, of uh, mammalian uh, organisms in their development in relationship over time. Mm. And that is its own whole world of theory and scholarship and application Mm -hmm. and practice. And what this article is doing is establishing those two ends of the spectrum and communicating everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those like come together in the recent research of infant studies, which neuropsych or psychoanalysis has been doing, you know, as early as Klein. Yeah. I mean, super early on yeah um but but then you have you know the more modern like brain technology of brain scanning yeah neuroimaging so then then you have yeah okay so how does the brain develop and uh, neuroscientists are asking these questions so then they go to the infants because they're like oh this is this is where the majority of brain growth and organizational structures happen yeah so then you have these two worlds collide unknowingly almost yeah and they're both talking about the same thing how does the infant brain develop yeah and they both kind of come to oh it's in relationships yeah you can't see the full picture without both and a myriad more yeah that reminds me of a of the immortal diamond by richard Rohr Mm, that you and i had talked about in graduate school oh yeah that's a we don't have to get into that i was just using it to call up the concept of you know we used to talk about how you need such an integrative model of theory to really understand any component of psychotherapy because it's so multifaceted. You have to look at every single side to really get the fuller picture. Mm -hmm. Now, because we're, you know, temporal beings, we have, we're unfortunately bound by temporality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We we can only read so much at one time, but that's why it's important to share with one another yeah. Um, our experience in gathering together these, this research and our practice mm-hmm. and sharing. And yeah. that's what evidence-based therapist is. Yeah. Yeah. So Alan Shore found himself caught right smack dab in the middle of that, um, having awareness of and, and deep connection with analysts mm-hmm. um, in the psychoanalytic field. He's done writings, edited books with uh, psychoanalysts. Um, but then he's also um, 
in neuroscience, especially affective neuroscience, um, developmental neuroscience. So he found himself kind of in this perfect time. Of, yeah. Oh my goodness, these are coming together. And even forwarding some some Freudian concepts, which we'll talk about probably in the last episode. But yeah. um, that's what this article is sort of looking at is when we get down to to look at intersubjectivity in the infant and we're paying close attention to the neurobiology and the biological development based on their interpersonal relationship to the mother, this is what we find. Yes. And so it's the synthesis of... Uh, analysis, psychoanalysis, and cognitive neuroscience, affective neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, yes. interpersonal neuroscience, all kind of coming together. All together. And yeah. it's summed up in a beautiful word, uh, phrase, or connection, the interpersonal neurobiology of intersubjectivity. Yes. That yeah. is really the <laughs> the most simple way you could say all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> all of what we just said in 10 minutes yeah. is said in the interpersonal neurobiology of intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, I mean, that to me is where we find our footing to start really talking about this article. And so it took a whole episode to intro this concept, um, but here we go. Yeah. So what we're going to do kind of together is we're going to bounce back and forth and we're going to read some quotes um, and then we're just going to kind of, since they're just little snippets, we're going to give the reader kind of further further processes on what this means, what yeah. he's talking about. Cause there's a lot of, it's like an annotated bibliography. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an auditory annotated bib. Yeah. Um, so a commentary on quotes. Yes. So the first one we wanted to talk about and, and I'll just read this and then we can kind of play with it. Okay, cool. Um, and again, Alan Shore is looking at infant studies, the brain development across infancy. So, um, what that looks like and how, the infant mother relationship um, plays a role in that. And specifically the importance of right hemispheric resonance or um, syn- um, synchronicity, synchronicity between the infant yeah. and mother as like the key element for healthy development. Right. And we'll talk about what resonance and synchronization or synchronicity mean yes. um, in both analytic and neurobiological terms. But I want to, I wanted to say that because in the first couple of words, it says face to face, eye to eye, intersubjective emotional communication. And I want the reader to know yes. that he's talking yes. very right hemispheric. I love it. So here's the quote in such face to face, eye to eye, intersubjective emotional communications, the infant and mother intently looking and listening to each other, synchronize and mutually regulate their emotional states indeed during these proto conversations the emotions of both members of the dyad are expressed and actively perceived in a spontaneous reciprocal and rhythmic turn-taking interaction man heck yeah sure Mm. yes um so again we're talking like caleb said about infant and mother Mm mm-hmm Um, and that is also generalized into infant and attachment figure. Yeah. But, um, for the sake of just biological evolutionary understanding, we're looking at mother and infant Mm -hmm. and what this concept really is evoking is that inner subjectivity is, is at the bare essential about two subjectivities or two organisms interacting with each other and that the way they interact with each other shapes and structures their biological self. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love like when we're talking about um, like subjectivity. Yeah. I love like looking at an infant, which there's some connotations in research that, you know, they're not subjective. Right. They're they're kind of, a, you know, not... An object to be carried around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in, in their complete dependence on the mother, that that means that they don't have subjectivity. But what Shore is pointing out, and he's using Trevarthan as well as a yeah, citation, yeah, mm-hmm. um, is that in it, as an infant they are a complex, non-linear, turn-taking organism. Yes, which hopefully when I say organism, I, I'm not meaning to demean not at the all. infant. No, yeah, no, not at all. Like that's beautiful. It's um, one of the most complex structures in the universe. Yes, yeah, but like the the mother and the infant are going to engage in subjective to subjective dance, mm. a sub- subject to subject dance. Um, and that the mother or we just as humans need to acknowledge that the yeah. infant has a subjectivity yes. and a sort of playful dance ability with the mother or with the caregiver. Right. And, and it happens um, spontaneously. And it happens reciprocally. Yes. And it's through that face-to-face, eye-to-eye, emotional communication, looking and listening intently, synchronizing and mutually regulating. Mm. It's, those are not just um, ways of interacting, but those are actually the way that um, we regulate each other mm-hmm. is through even what he says, the proto conversations, these, these things that happen without explicit articulation, like mm-hmm. language, like actual words being said, that's, that's not, mm. uh, the regulating force. It's all of these other things that we do in, uh, in our body's recognition that another subjectivity, another body is in the room. Yeah. 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 And I love, like, I love, yeah, I, the the idea of proto conversations yeah being a sort of um like everything we do is communicating That's everything right. we do it has a form of language mm. if i move my body a certain way it's communicating to you and that's speak it's a it, i'm having a conversation even though i'm not using words and how i'm moving and shifting and being in proximity to you and i love this idea that the infant has conversations at like from the start, like has these proto conversations with the mother because, and, and just as a therapist, like, you know, I don't know. I've sat with clients who like are in either shutdown states or just are so terrified of the therapeutic encounter yeah. that the speech isn't like, that's not their primary mode of talking to me. Yeah. So then it kind of makes me feel a little bit more comfortable that I can still engage in a conversation with them and we don't have to rely on words. Well, and that's what ensures other work and we won't get too much into it, but the right brain to right brain psychotherapy, Hmm. that's where language is not the main point at all. Spoken language, explicit articulation is not the main point. It's actually in that nonverbal proto conversational um, vocabulary of body posture, of intention, of tone, of face shape, of uh, speech and cadence, speed of speech, all of those things that's actually um, increasing the connectivity and the mirroring between two humans. Yeah. And thus providing the conduit that therapy, that that help and growth actually occurs inside of. Yeah. Yeah. And we're kind of like 
edging on jumping ahead, but like that is like an and and SIP's model, like the looping mm. is like you go from the right hemisphere and you have to have the proto conversation. You have to have the synchronization of the right hemisphere, the right brain to right brain communication through the body. Then that provides the template for the left hemisphere to actually have what it needs to make sense of what it is experiencing. That's right. Otherwise you collapse down into the past experiences, bring those into the present and make narratives that aren't quite true to what is taking place around you. Yes. Um, and that's so powerful. Oh my gosh. Hmm. I, I just feel like we need to take a break because that's only <laughs> the first quote. I know. Don't worry, we're only 24 minutes in. Okay, okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious, were there any others on the first? Yeah, all of them. I feel like we should just read the article maybe, like verbally. No. This is just a seminar. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think the next quote that I want to read is on the top of that second paragraph mm. or that second column. Um, the intrinsic regulators of human gr brain growth in a child are specifically adapted to be coupled by emotional communication to the regulators of an adult brain. These regulated intersubjective interactions permit the intercoordination of positive affective brain states within the emotionally communicating dyad. That, hmm. I mean, again, it just says so much so succinctly, yeah. but it's, it's, it's talking about the ways that the infant brain, the developing mind is dependent on these already uh, further in-process brains to learn how to even adapt and develop themselves. Mm. It's through that reciprocal regulation from a dependent onto the one they're dependent on uh, for the facilitation of that growth and even the structures of the brain in their linking and differentiation yeah. of how to develop. Yeah. So that's happening structurally. And what this is going to go on to say is that it's not just developing the brain, but also the mind, mm. the way the mind emerges, the concept of self and other, what we know about ourselves and what we know about another person is built in relationship, which just right there. Cause you made a distinction that I want to make sure that the listeners, cause you said the brain and the mind and you oh, yeah, insinuated yeah, yeah. that those are two different things. So, yes. um, I, and that's an interpersonal neurobiology concept, right? That brain and mind are not the same thing. No. So do you want to sure. kind of illuminate that well, a little bit more? Well, the way we mean it, or I guess maybe I'll just speak for the way that I mean it and I'll yeah. see if you want to add, yeah. but the way that I mean it is that the brain is this mass of, it's an organ in the body and it is a mass of cells that are wildly, uh, and intricately interconnected. Mm-hmm. And that in their interconnection, which is built over time in relationship, the mind emerges almost like above the brain. Mm. It's within, but it's almost as if it creates a, a universe in itself of what do I know about me in the world around me Yeah, and other people? Who am I? What is my worth? What is my identity? What does it mean to be me? What do other people think of me? What do I think of them? Is yeah. the world safe? What do I do in the world? All of these things that we attribute to, you know, identity and consciousness, all of those things are emergent in that they come from the organization of the brain. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the brain is a huge funnel 
for energy. Yes. And what it will funnel it into is information. It'll put energy in a certain formation. Right. So then we all know that if you have, you can have a whole brain, but you can have missing body parts. Right. And the information that your brain receives will be different from somebody who has that body part. Right. So then that person's mind is different than the other person's mind because their system is different. And so Dan Siegel talks about like the mind is an embodied and relational complex process process that emerges within and between brains, Brains. which is not just, he talks about, it's not just your brain and my brain, but it's my brain brain. It's my heart brain. It's my gut brain. That's right. So I have multiple quote unquote brains in my body and it's, my mind is both embodied and it's relational. So this is like the intersubjective field. Um, of, yeah, interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just wanted to kind of caveat that because I think that's important as we kind of go through of when we're talking about, you know, when we're talking the, the first relationship affects the neurobiological development, mm-hmm. structural development of, of the, the infant yeah. and, and the brain. That impacts the mind that we come in contact with yes. in therapy. And I just feel like we cannot emphasize this enough. Like let's stop the podcast. <laughs> like this is uh, to me, one of the most important things that we can know, not just as psychotherapists, but as humans, that relationships shape the fundamental organization and structural development of our brains. Yes. And from that brain that's organized in relationship, the mm-hmm. mind emerges. Yeah. That to me like throw the DSM out the window. Mm-hmm. Like we, these are not disorders that emerge just out of chemical imbalances. They are reactions to interpersonal experiences and the way that we responded to them. Yeah. That's what all of dysfunction quote unquote is that dysfunction is found in intersubjectivity and the organization of mind. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Which involves the brain. Yes. But is not limited to just the brain. No. And I hope everyone is understanding this. Yeah. Do you feel like it's coming across clearly? Yeah. Yeah. I also just felt somewhat of like a moment to pause and to just address, because we like, I think, immediately got sympathetically charged in in like a mixed state of ventral and sympathetic energy. Yeah. Because we were so excited about finding research that is kind of going through the whole lifespan. Like how does relationality impact infancy and how does that then expand out into therapy? But I think for some people, like there is an adverse, like especially for therapists an adverse kind of reaction potential to starting to talk about the infant and mother. Oh, yeah. Like, don't tell me my problems are just yeah. my my mom before I could even make memories. Because at this infancy age, you're not even making explicit memory. Right, narrative. autobiographical narrative. Autobiogra- yeah, yeah. Um, don't tell me my problems are there. Right. And, I, and, and I, don't ask me about my mom. Yeah. Like. Yeah, and I, you know what? I get it. I do. Because your problems aren't only there. No. But, like, we we believe that there's so much beauty in recognizing how this the relationship power. then, and, and the relate and, and you know, we could bring in Crittenden at this point that we're not just call back ad- to episode two, call back to episode two again, um, 
on the Crittenton podcast. Um, just joking. But <laughs> the idea that attachment styles are not just to these huge categorical yeah. ideas of, you know, caretaker and that's it. And then everyone else is then related to it in a caretaking way as my caretaker. No, the nervous system and your embodied mind is much more complex than that and has has the ability to recognize the difference between, you know, okay, one caretaker and the other. And so we'll use different strategies for the different caretakers. And so it isn't, I forget where I was going with that. Well, I think you were talking about the aversion that many people have oh, yeah, to yeah, hearing yeah, yeah. about this is about your mother and the way yeah. that they treated you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and well, and, and recognizing that, like, there's a, a supreme importance in how the clients we see these early re- relationships, not just with the mother, but any caretaker. That's where it was. That's that's the grounding point I needed. Yeah, with any person in their proximity that was reflecting or or um, disintegrating their experience, dis- disconfirming their experience as an infant, as a child as, as uh, early adolescents, adolescents, all the, all of that has a huge impact in their biology. Yes. And we need to pay attention to that in therapy. I can't expect someone who has this early relational discord and disconfirming experience that has patterns of that through their entire adolescence and stuff to go at a pace that maybe somebody who has a really positive infancy and childhood relationship who has some struggles maybe relationally in adolescence, they're going to get to two different places because not just because of like who they are, right? but because the biological structures did not have what they needed to organize in the way that they just naturally do. Right. And so then as a therapist, I need to pay attention to that. And it all comes back to the importance of this early relationship. Yes. And, um, another analyst, Daniel Stern, mm. um, wrote a book called the first relationship. And that is why not because there's some, you know, you always have to go back to the mother, but we are relational beings and we learn how to be in relationship over time. Mm. We respond not just in behavior, but behavior itself is emergent from very deep in the brain structural changes. Relationships shape our brain. Mm hmm. And therefore, the first relationship is of utmost importance. Yeah. Ah, yes. That feels like a good place to then dive back into. Jump back again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, another, here's another quote. And this is, um, so the, the, there was the introduction, which we were just in. Then he splits to another section called regulation theory models inner subjectivity as right lateralized nonverbal emotional communications. Right. Which like, please don't check out there because that was a lot of words that you're like, neuroanatomy. You may be like, Oh, gross. Right. right lateralized. Very simply. We're dealing, dealing with the right side of the brain, not just the right neocortex, the high part, but the right side of the brain, right hemisphere, the whole right hemisphere. Yep. Yes, exactly. So, uh, when it talks about right lateralized nonverbal emotional communication, it's talking about right brain to right brain communication. Mm. Do you feel like that's a simple way of saying it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So he says the central focus of this psychoneurobiological model of human development 
is to more deeply understand the underlying mechanisms by which the structure and function of the mind and brain are shaped by experiences, especially those embedded in emotional relationships, as well as the relational mechanisms by which communicating brains synchronize and align their neural activities with other brains. There it is. Yeah. I mean, that said in just a couple, well, one sentence, that was one sentence, um, what we took just again, another 10 minutes to explain. Um, but it's, it, it's really looking at the embeddedness of emotional relationships and the formation and organization of the mind yeah. in its brain parts. The brain is structurally and functionally organized by experience, especially the, re- the emotional ones in relationships. And then it's also organized by the relational mechanisms in which brains synchronize and align their activities together. Yeah. Yeah. So right there we have kind of another step in this article where he's not only talking about the mom's ability to just observe the infant. So not just see that the infant is crying and, and, and like pay attention in a way of just sort of objective looking at. What he's talking about is that the mother synchronizes her own brain to the emotional experience of the infant. Right. So when you hear me say that, what comes to mind as far as synchronizing your brain to someone's affect? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like the um, way of mirroring one another. That in synchronizing, what I'm doing is the fundamentals of empathy, the fundamentals of sympathy, of compassion, of mentalizing. Um, All of these are features that we can talk a lot more about, but to synchronize my brain with yours is to, in my subjectivity, experience your subjectivity, Mm -hmm. what it is like to feel the way that you're feeling, not to solve it or to get out of it, but to really connect with the way that you're feeling as a subjective brain. Yeah. And, And even as you're saying that, we don't have the video recording, but your face changes, your body posture changes, your tone of voice changes when you're talking about, you know, the difference between synchronizing and then just like talking to the brain. And I think that is super important when we're look, when we're talking about synchronizing brains is if I'm doing right brain to right brain connection, my embodiment changes. Yes. I am showing you that my system senses and experiences what you're experiencing. Would you be up for, and I'm totally open to you saying no to this. But would you be up for a brief review of the strange situation, Bowlby's mm-hmm. uh, attachment uh, assessment, essentially yeah. looking at it and talking about the ways that each parent-child dyad is synchronizing, not synchronizing, how those bids for connection are being met with rejection or acceptance? I yeah. think it could be a really practical way yeah. of yeah. kind of bringing this home. Yeah, because this this is um, Bowlby. Yep. And it's who many um, are familiar with. Yes. In yeah. Attachment yeah. literature and things yep. like that. Kind of like American the father, attachment. Yeah. Yep. Of American attachment. Yeah. So, strange situation. You have a child playing in a room and you have a parent there, a caretaker. Yep. And the caretaker's there, is engaging the child. Then the caretaker leaves. So, the baby is left alone. Then a stranger comes in to the situation so so the steps are caretaker child are together child is alone child is with a stranger child is then alone and then child is with caretaker again yes 
So what they were looking at was how does the child engage with the separation from the caretaker? What strategies does the child implore or utilize or come up with? And then how does the child react when the caretaker comes back? Yes. So this is a, this is a form of, uh, this is that turn taking actually that, uh, Shore and Trevartan were talking about of like, okay, caretaker leaves. How does that affect the child? Right. But then when caretaker comes back, how does the child try to elicit the par- the parent or caretaker to come closer and yeah get that proximity to, to feel felt by the caretaker yeah the emotional connectivity yeah and that's where so just to give the the categories of what they observed in this and they did this thousands of times with yes. different infant pair uh, infant mother dyad pairs um, but what they observed was that typically children fell into uh, three kind of neat categories and then they had a fourth category that cannot, they said cannot cannot yeah. categorize yeah yeah cannot categorize and what they found were was that uh secure or type b uh typically fell into uh, a secure uh orientation so they were organized around um meeting the mother uh with uh in their reintroduction to the space with um you know feelings of oh i missed you you know crying or, or things yeah. like that but then as the mother came back uh emotion soothed and there was a, there was a soothability resyn- of yeah. affect resynchronization yeah. began yep. the mother kind of was empathic with the child um giving validation and affirmation to the way that the child was mm-hmm. um uh, kind of distressed mm-hmm. by the leaving and that it's okay mom is back and we're back to yeah uh, which secure brains are <laughs> that's an interesting way to say that yeah. That the children who displayed secure attachment styles still showed affect That's and right. negative affect. Yeah, they cried. But it was appropriate and it was then soothable, re rhythmically oriented with the caretaker. Right. But then they had type A and C, which were going into ways of being insecurely attached, what they would come to call later, which for type A, this is the uh, avoidant um, strategies that were looking uh, in mom leaving low distress not affected by mom leaving and yep. as mom came back little awareness that she even came back yep not showing any uh need or attachment cry behaviors of where's my mom mm-hmm. it the strategy was chosen in the infant same age as the securely attached that i don't really need mom i'm okay without her it's all right and in the other side the type c there was this um, preoccupation with the, uh, emotional anxious. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This anxious preoccupation with the emotional concreteness of the mother Mm -hmm. is mom going to come back. Oh, I don't know. Because then when she does, I'm still going to show big negative affect because I'm not sure that she's going to stay around. Yeah. So I need to keep it. I can't be soothed. Yeah. I'm going to show negative affect all the time. Yeah. And that elicits like the proximity staying. Right. And what Bowlby kind of determined in, in conjunction also with Maine and Hess and uh, Crittenden as well later, a different orientation, but um, was that for the type A and C, there was um, specific strategies around maintaining physical and emotional proximity. For mm. the dismissive, there was this goal that, well, if I don't act like I need mom, I can sort of back my way into 
uh, mom and there was some amazing footage captured of the mother sitting on a couch and the infant playing on the floor not facing her Mm -hmm. but slowly nudging their way proximity seeking yeah closely nudging their way back like they're back to the mother yeah into connection with the mom whereas for the preoccupied there was intense engagement at first of you know mom and i are connected this is good and i'm going to be very expressive and emotive and connect with her and then as she leaves big affect and as she comes back still big affect because i don't know is she going to leave again mm-hmm. but that strategy is that if i show big affect uh or, or high emotional engagement at first maybe she'll be more interested in me mm-hmm. and stay around yeah because she seems to be engaged with me so yeah. i'm going to keep showing that mm-hmm and then the final type D organization was a disorganized, which is type A and C combinations going into um, dismissive at times, but then also preoccupied at times. Again, showing I'm going to use every strategy I've got because mom is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it what works. Sometimes dismissive works. Sometimes preoccupied works. But I'm not secure and I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I I do love that you brought that up because that illuminates that in early childhood and late infancy, these strategies Mm -hmm. that, you know, when, when Shore's talking about brain synchronicity and the right brain to right brain communication, he's talking two to eight months. Like that's like super fast. But then the strange situation is, um, up to 18 months. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, so we're talking later on down the line, but you're seeing how, behavioral strategies are already being developed um, and the brain is already using some of these um, kind of already kind of oriented structures of the brain in their body to um, kind of seek proximity to uh, ensure connection. But then there's the secure um, presentations that can reattune, resynchronize, and show regulation of affect. Yes. But then there are those who could not. Maybe they stayed in the dismissive stance, the ambivalent stance, mm-hmm. um, or they stayed in the anxious, preoccupied, um, anxious avoidance stance, um, where they both of those are avoidant in a way of regulation. Mm-hmm. And that's what Shore is saying is that what's so critical in these early periods of infancy with this right brain to right brain connection is that the children, the infants, learn that they can synchronize with and regulate down affect. And in doing so, what then is possible is a sort of integration of mind where the left hemisphere can then begin to actually make sense of what happened. But if that, and this is, I'm, I'm venturing into some of Shore's larger work, is mm-hmm. if that can't happen, if the right hemisphere, if the sensed, expression or experience of the world is too much the brain will split right brain becomes closed yes and the left brain is forced to make sense without all of the information yes and so you'll get these faulty quote-unquote beliefs or or ways of organizing information that are missing so much of the stimuli from the right hemisphere yes because the right hemisphere was so overwhelmed it had no one to lean on yeah no one to help carry the weight that felt overwhelming and so it just closed off yes and that's where i just love again that this article allows us to bring together both interpersonal neurobiology and psychoanalytic Mm, theory because um robert stolero 
gave a definition of trauma that I just so resonate with. Yes. It's the experience of intolerable affect in uh, or without secure attunement. In the absence yeah, of... Yeah, in the absence of secure attunement. Thank you. Um, that it is because of that intolerable affect, again, as Caleb just said, right hemisphere uh, becomes closed yeah, to the an overactive connection. right hemisphere. Yeah. It is overwhelmed by how much it is feeling and right. sensing. In the absence of secure attunement, which secure attunement is the very thing that the right hemisphere is concerned with. Mm-hmm. Becoming connected right hemispherically allows us to tolerate greater um, affective distress. Yeah. So if we don't have it, we're less likely to be able to tolerate that amount of affective distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to sometimes talk about it with clients is like you get a ton of weight put on your shoulders, which is too much for you. Yeah. So then you just shut down. Yeah. And then you make stories about how you're such a bad weightlifter. You can't lift weights and you Mm -hmm. should not even be in the gym. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But like that was too much for you to carry in general. Right. And actually you were supposed to be playing a team sport. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> team weightlifting. So then when I can enter into a relationship with you, I can see that you're struggling with the weight. I can help you lift the weight. Yeah. And then we can actually do what we're supposed to do. And then you'll get more accurate stories about yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was supposed to be in a team sport. I was supposed to be working with other people. And actually I did my part right the way I should. And then you get more a- accurate representations of yourself. But you needed someone to come along and say, oh, that's too much weight. Well, Let yeah. me help you. To remind you that you're not supposed to be able to do it by yeah. yourself. Yeah. That that's okay. Yeah. And then to switch that to your brain Yeah, is like, uh, as you're developing your, your, the fact that your brain is growing bigger and your neural connections are growing kind of more complex as you develop, you are literally experiencing more electricity in your brain yeah. than you were yesterday. Right. And with that m- more electricity, it's beyond what your brain is used to engaging. Mm. And so it needs an other to come alongside and synchronize with that and say, oh, that's okay. Yes. So that you don't shut down. And that can th- we connect in that? Yeah. Yeah. And can we recognize that this is okay? Yeah. You're safe that in this overwhelm of what it feels right now. But just know that tomorrow it may not feel that way. Right. That is the emotional synchronicity that's occurring in the brain in the experience of relational Mm. connectivity. Yeah. That because we are able to connect in right brain to right brain hemispheric ways or patterns, we are able to share the load. Mm. Yeah. To connect in carrying the weight together. Yeah. And it's in, oh, it's so beautiful. It's in the connection, in the synchronicity of two brains and two systems and two people that you actually realize that you can carry more weight than you thought you could. Yes. You can do more than you thought you could, but you, you just naturally are dependent on other people before you can even know that. And that's, that to me is where. Another just main point of the the article and this whole theory that we're unpacking is that it's through that process of connection underneath the weight that our brain develops. It's in that connection and Mm. our experience of how that weight carrying was negotiated between the two of us. Yeah. 
was the weight too much for you? And you then blamed me for recruiting you to help me carry it. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm forced to carry it by myself with your blame and abandonment. Mm -hmm. That's going to be remembered in my body in a very different way than if we connect together and say, dang, this thing is heavy. Mm. It is. We're almost done. We're almost there. Or even if it's too heavy and we need to just set it down together. That's going to be remembered very differently. Mm-hmm. And thus the, the, the way the brain develops and is built over time and thus the emergence of mind is going to be totally different. Yeah. Yeah. I think of polyvagal theory, yep. the safety and connection. Yes. And that is critical for the brain to develop further. Yes. Become more complex. Um, I think that leads me to, um, at this point, I think maybe, yeah. This is a quote that I think we'll just spend a tremendous amount of time on. Okay. Um, so, and it's, it's a little longer, um, but here we'll go. Um, he's saying, basically, he has cited a ton of uh, research about <laughs> the early development of the right hemisphere. And basically he says, and I have concluded that the essential adaptive capacity of inner subjectivity is specifically impacted by the infant's early social experiences. So the adaptive capacity of inner subjectivity, that ability to go beyond what you previously thought you could go to, yes, is specifically impacted by the infant's early social experiences. Right. But hold on. Since these social interactions are occurring in a critical period of right brain growth, this is two to 18 months. Yep. The child is using the output of the mother's right cortex as a template for the imprinting, the hardwiring of circuits in his own developing right cortex that will come to mediate his expanding social emotional capacities to appraise variations in both external and internal information. So again, the child is using the output of the mother's right cortex. So the mother's synchronicity or communication right brain to right brain as a template. As a template. It's imprinted in... Oh, this is sh- how I should try it. Yes. And it hardwires circuits in the infant's right cortex that will then come to mediate their expanding social emotional capacities and appraise variations of external internal information. This, like, to me, like that end, I want to talk about the rest, but that end, the capacity to appraise variations in both external and internal information to me is a callback to the misattribution article that we did on On shame. On the origin of shame. Yeah. That's right. And how these early relational engagements and encounters can be what forms the later on experience of, am I misattributing information because I'm relying on too little of my brain Mm -hmm. because in early relationships, those parts of my brain weren't reflected to me. Yeah. So this again brings me back to Crittenden in her understanding of the various types of attachment. So Mm. uh, I'm going to use things that are specific to the way of processing information and affectivity. So with disorgan or sorry, with dismissive orientations, it is about omitted affect and distorted cognition. So again, we're thinking back to what Shore just said about the variations in both external and internal information 
appraisals. Mm-hmm. Okay. So dismissive orientations are organized around omitted affect. So I don't have emotionality. Remember back to the strange situation that mm-hmm. child showed no emotional affectivity to the presence, whether it be absent or present of mother. Okay. Mm-hmm. And distorted cognition. In adulthood, this gets wrapped into story of justifying shame narratives and why we shouldn't be open to connection with others or with um, uh, trusting others, things like that. Preoccupied anxious styles are organized around distorted affect and and omitted cognition. Mm -hmm. So the cognition, the way of thinking, the clarity of thought, and the exactness of appraisal mm-hmm. is augmented because of the chaos experienced in earlier relationships. Yeah. And then with the disorganized type, you have omitted affect and omitted cognition. Yeah. Or sorry, no, it's um, distorted. Distorted. Sorry, yeah. Distorted both. affect and distorted cognition, yeah. where both, it is utter chaos internally, mm-hmm. and the strategies are all over the map yeah yeah miss misattribution internally misattribution externally and that that is learned and emergent from those early relational experiences yeah yeah the mother providing the template that's right or the caregiver let's i mean expand broaden it. it a little bit yeah but i think you know we talked about this last week the sullivanian idea um, Sullivan interpersonal psychiatry, Henry Stack Sullivan, uh, Hen- Henry Stack Sullivan. Um, the idea that the self is the ref- reflected appraisal of the other. Yeah. And that's like a very psychoanalytically abstract representation of this. Meaning if you're, if the part of you that's angry is never reflected back to you by the caretaker, that part slowly dies. Right. You learn not to be angry. Yeah. You must dissociate away yeah. your own anger. And while that system is there and can be reclaimed later on in life, the the neurosequential firing patterns are yes. myelinated in inhibition it, away from anger. That circuit. Yeah. Because you weren't reflected that early on. Which means in in the in the absence of its reflection, it means that it was intersubjectively negotiated that this is inappropriate. Yeah. And intolerable. Because the, the parents have their own intolerable affects that they were mirrored they were or mirrored, mirrored or not mirrored. Yeah. Oh, and the complexity of that. Yeah. And also like the self-compassion as yes. a caretaker or just as a person who experiences this as a person who was once an infant, which we all were. I think that's everyone. That would be, yeah, checks out everyone. <laughs> the self-compassion. I didn't of, bring my watch with me, but I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That for everyone Mm -hmm. has an element of self-compassion and recognizing, you know, you are not just bad. You can't be just bad. Yes. Like there are reasons for your adaptive responses to the world. And yeah, it may be unhealthy and not helpful, but just because you struggle to feel sadness, anger, you struggle to communicate, you know, Oh, I had this, I had a client that was, you know, I, I had asked him a question and he couldn't answer. His mind just went blank. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a kind of a, an emotionally pointed question. And I literally saw him drop into a dissociative state, could not think, 
you know, I checked in and said, oh, did your mind just go blank? And he's like, yeah. And then out came narratives of self-loathing. Oh, wow. He's like, I'm just, I hate this experience. Like, I feel like such an idiot. And I feel like my brain just can't do what other people's does. Wow. And I, I and that was like a beautiful moment of saying, hey, that's not because you're an idiot. That's because, and, and that you can't do it. Your brain is actually trying to keep you safe. Yeah. Because this experience emotionally, especially in the presence of another person, has maybe not worked out in the way that it's working out right now. And the way that it's working out right now is that I want to feel it with you and we'll walk through it. We'll yeah. get to the other side. Yeah. What you're experiencing now as uh you know, an inability of your mind compared to other people was at one time a cost your system was very willing to pay in order to maintain proximity and care of those that you were so dependent on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But now that strategy, that, um, that way of processing, um, or, or appraising, the situation that you're in no longer serves you because mm -hmm. it's actually keeping you from the meaningful connections that you're so desirous of. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, there's the first half of that quote that we really didn't talk about, but I want to, Okay. where he says the essential adaptive capacity of inner subjectivity is specifically impacted by the infant's early social experiences. Now, we've kind of like talked about this a little bit more and more of how subject to subject relationships that have a quality of embodiment, right brain to right brain, allow the person to go beyond where they currently are. Mm. So I feel an overwhelming affect. You synchronize with me, you reflect it, and then you also soothe it. Yeah. Displacing the weight of it. Yep. Now the next time, my brain structure, structures are literally formed differently to be able to experience that with potentially less less um, activation. Yeah, dysregulation. Dysregulation. Oh, that's a great word. Yeah. And over time, handle it as though there's no activation. And that's because... Dysregulation. Sorry. And this, again is about the internalization of this synchronistic process mm -hmm. between intersubjective pairs. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I love that you're saying this. Yes, because the it, it's not fostering lifelong codependence. That's not the goal. And we say uh, humans are biologically utterly codependent. We mm -hmm. say that quite provocatively, mm -hmm. intentionally so, because it's through codependence of the first relationship that we internalize ability to tolerate increasingly uh, greater affectivity. Yeah. Yeah. This is totally right back to the structural dissociation, Steele and Vanderhart, yeah. where we talked about you have to be codependent then you move into interdependence, That's right. then you move into autonomy. But then the, the beauty of life is that you're in this dance between autonomy and interdependence. interdependence. Oh, that's um, so good. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's beautiful. I, I want to also talk about how, um, you know, we've at beyond, we've talked about and in, in SIP trainings, you know, we'll use kind of the idea of interobjectivity. Yeah. And so when we talk about this idea of intersubjectivity and it has a, an adaptive capacity that helps you go beyond what at one point felt like the end of you yeah. now is just a part of you because 
intersubjectively you were able to handle it, that the opposite of that being interobjectivity. Yeah. Can we just talk about that real yes. quick? Like yeah. Interobjectivity. Yeah. Okay. Say what you mean by interobjectivity. Cause I yeah. freaking love this. Yes. <laughs> so like interobjectivity is when you have two people who are both entering into the space between as both objectifying the other and self. Yeah. And so the space is not two subjects. The space is to object. So, so then. Well, well I was just going to say, uh, the, 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 um, example of, uh, disintegrated anger, mm. creating an object that has no anger in it. A subject has all affective potential. Okay, it can experience all of our primary and secondary and tertiary processes. Even those affects. intention. Yeah, exactly. That's the beauty of being a subject. Exactly. I can have all of it, but when a piece of it is shown to be inappropriate and therefore forbidden, I must create an object that no longer has that affective presentation. Yeah. I am now Bridger who never gets angry because yeah. I've learned that anger doesn't ever get me the type of support that I actually need. Mm -hmm. But that's me now being an object and not a subject. Yeah. I am objective bridger because I have an affective state that is forbidden from my being. Yeah. So yeah. now I'm an object. Yeah. And when you think of interobjectivity, you have to think of despair. Forbidden subjectivity. Yes. Utter despair. Has despair. It's a quality of interobjectivity. It, and... Maybe not like in like the moment. No, they likely experience their presence as like fine homeostatic. I, I was I was just about to say homeostatic or neutral, right? Or quote unquote normal, right? Because I'm thinking of just how, especially in a Western um, capital-driven society, you know, we're kind of always interacting with each other interobjective, interobjectively, right? Because we have work to do. Right. And you've got to do which your job. I've got to do my job. Objective hat. Yes. I am a therapist. Which is, you know what? That's not got the quality of despair, like, deeply right in that moment. But why do people burn out? Ah, I was just about to say, but what about the workaholic? Ooh, that, that's the other side. Yeah. The one who has, like, this repressed despair and over-reliance on their objectivity, yeah. their self-objectified states, and getting into relationships that don't subjectify them enough to acknowledge the despair, yeah. but just kind of maintain this like do-or-done-to relationship. Right. Oh, man. And over time, Bridger, what we talked about at the start is, you know, Dan Siegel has the idea of there's integration in the middle, which is like a river of integration. Right, but on, on either side. On either side, and this is how you can classify any psychiatric disorder. Yeah. Rigidity or chaos. Uh, those are m s frameworks of the mind. Yes. And disintegration is either rigid or chaotic. And I think for interobjectivity, maybe the despair can be avoided in some sense in that moment. But in order to continue to tolerate the despair or suppress it or repress it even... Yeah you are going to have to drift into either intense chaos or intense rigidity, which both of which have psychiatric disorders 
at the end of their spectrum. Again, showing that the disorder is not a primary issue. No. It is a recognition of a primary issue. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the organization of brain parts and the emergent mind. That is experience dependent. dependent. Yeah. Oh. We're not just talking about the the man as an island. No, mind who, on a stick. Yeah, that has just like randomly decided somewhere along his way oh. or her way to adopt these rigid or chaotic strategies. No, it was in relationships, which is embodied, yes. which involves the right hemisphere and proto-conversation. Just for our awareness. It's an hour and 10 minutes in. <laughs> and so <laughs> we've, I got, think, we've got like three more paragraphs to go, but I just cannot tell you how just activated my body is in the best way of like yeah. we're just in it right now yeah and i'm so grateful um but i want to keep going yeah yeah because um, yeah i think that just feels to me like a little bit um i feel a little insecure about not doing alan shore's work justice because this does feel so yeah. powerful and as, as therapists i want i want us to know like the beauty and depth of our work in the office, because it's easy to forget like what we're doing and just sitting with our clients. Yes. Like the fact that we're literally changing brain structures is like so beautiful, but we forget that. So I think um, we can read this final quote and use it as a summary. Yeah. And just kind of talk. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm at the bottom of page four here from an interpersonal neurobiological perspective. Intersubjectivity represents a co-created system of unconscious communications of positive and negative affect between two subjective minds throughout the lifespan. Hmm. I love that he says between two subjective minds because that's right up what we were saying. Intersubjectivity is not, and this is like Jessica Benjamin, who's a psychoanalytic writer. Yeah. She talks about how if you're in a do or done to relationship, of inner objectivity or what she calls complementary relationship, you are not a subject, right? You're not a whole person and therefore you can't be engaged in an inner subjectivity. But what he's saying is this inner subjective dialogue is inherent from, yeah, is, is a co-created system of unconscious communication of positive and negative affect between two people subjects yes i love that yes so caleb just from these first four pages okay (laughs) what are your main takeaways i think i think my main takeaway has to be that the the synchronizing and co-regulating um other mother parent caretaker whoever therapist therapist <laughs> is providing physical templates in the psychological yeah. and like biological, biological brain of the other of the client of the child of the infant and in doing so like this that like imprinting is part of the ongoing process of how they will then experience and organize information in the future. Yeah. And that's powerful. 
Be- yeah. Every, from there you get powerful. Yeah. From there you get theories of everything. Disorder, disease, which is different from disease. Disease. You get theories of health mm-hmm. and expansion. connection, expansion, growth. human growth and development. Like you get everything. It feels like from just this idea of inner subjective right hemisphere to right hemisphere communication that then is lateralized across the hemisphere to the left hemisphere in a sort of understanding of the world and yourself. Yes. And to me, my main takeaway, and this is a little bit of a cheat and not just giving it a straight answer, but to me, the biggest takeaway from inner subjectivity as a whole, um, well, no, I'm not going to, trap myself in that yeah (laughs) like right now at least my my biggest takeaway is what this way of thinking and being does to my understanding of dissociation Mm. because an affect state within my subjectivity was determined to be inappropriate and thus forbidden from my being my body knows the process of dissociation where I will cut it out, Hmm. put it away, create an objectivity that no longer holds that icky, inappropriate feeling. Hmm. Yeah. And that by my ability to do that, I know my worth and my place in relationship. Hmm. Don't worry. I have no needs. Yeah. I'm not going to ever be angry. And I will care about you in a codependent way for the rest of my life. Hmm. The implications of the interpersonal neurobiology of intersubjectivity when looking at any person, it is finding the roots, finding the present in the past. Hmm. It's finding our way of being as a successive approximation, a summation of our lived experience up to this point. And that earlier experiences because of the, of the spontaneous growth potential in these uh, sensitive stages of growth, those have organizing effects mm. on our experience and the way our brains develop in relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that also salvages dissociation from this, the over-stigmatized disease yeah. And the underappreciated kind of aloofness of using dissociation is like, I, I forgot when I walked through the doorway, right. What I was thinking of. So then I'm dissociated. Like, yeah, maybe, but also like there's more there. There's so, so much more. Like, yeah, it saves it from the two and, and brings it into the balance of, as like, you said, salvages my mind filled in what you would say of like, salvages it from the wreckage of misunderstanding Mm, Yeah, that we don't understand dissociation if our understanding of it is limited to uh, zoning out, Mm -hmm. which is definitely utilizing the biological hardware for sure. I love that you use the word process. That's the process. Yes, but it is not the end of the process or it is not the full potential of the process. Dissociation is our biological uh, mechanism for maintaining proximity with those that have determined that our affectivity is inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And like dissociation is so creative as a process that it doesn't have to be a embodied real other. It can be a virtual yeah. imprinted 
mental interjected other. other. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that maintains that dissociated affect state organization of the self over time. Yeah. We may not have people that think our anger is inappropriate in our life now, but the people who are the most important to us in the earliest parts of our life did. They did. Yeah. And they still live in us. Yeah. Hmm. So there's, yeah, I'm so excited for the future sessions. So let me give a little teaser. Yeah, um, please do. Because what we're going to talk about next week and, and the weeks to follow are, um, more details of what it looks like to have right lateralized uh, synchrony in face-to-face proto conversations, mm-hmm. which, and we'll probably dive more and more into proto conversations, right. and, um, the different parts of auditory, facial, um, and tactile communication through because the right hemisphere process. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the, we're going to really jump into the bio and energetic transmissions and synchronizing brain. So how synchronizing right brain to right brain through communication of um, proto-conversations and embodiment is going to energetically bloom in your brain. Yeah. And again, this is like the process of taking you farther than you were right now. You're going to go farther, and so your brain is going to develop more. Um, And then, oh, we're going to talk about the right temple parietal cortex oh my goodness the integrating center of sensed experience the emergence of the theory of mind yes and just (laughs) such a like that is such a hub of so much of what we've talked about a hub of dissociative tendencies a hub of information Identity. identity information formation um the overwhelming affect like oh there's so much there i'm so mad that i that this article was published in 2021 because for my theory of mind paper that was written before this article came out and he did so much of the work that i was trying to do it alan come on alan like six months ago would have been nice i will say to my credit i did have a lot of these primary sources in my work so i was i was on the same bread curl trump yeah bread Crumb trail. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, bread trail crumb. Sorry. Yeah, my brain just went ahead and made it I right. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Synchronization. Yep. You're in it. <laughs> but my, you know, the, these, this synthesis is just so beautiful mm. that Shore is putting together. Yeah. So then, you know, okay, we've got right temporal parietal junction, the cortex. TPG. But then, but then we've also got, okay, so what does this look like for the first year? Of life. What does it look like beyond the first year? Um, we're going to talk about therapy and how this relates, um, and then give some clinical applications and sure does a beautiful job of what this looks like. We're probably going to be in this article for a while. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just flipping through and uh, there's episodes you're talking about. Yeah, There's <laughs> not a section that doesn't have the majority underlined and my margins are just cruel. Yeah. The temporal parietal junction margins are just like. Like you're looking yes. at that, like that is just writing that can't be read almost. It's Impactful. just so much. Yeah. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed the session. Um, yeah. Again, one of the ways that I think would be really cool is if you have further questions or if this is sparking a lot of thoughts, reach out to us, email or on Patreon, um, even, um, you know, different ways of connecting with us on social media. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, there's so much in this 
and it's impossible for us in an hour and a half to even like really do it justice. Yeah. But I'm hoping that again, this is one of those moments where we return to why we wanted to do this. I was just going to ask if you're open to one more question. Yeah. What does something like this article mean to you as a researcher? Oh. Hmm. I think, I think as I was reading the article and thinking about a person who's wanting to always be in the quest of inquiry, yeah. this article is like, I imagine for sure was filled with so many emotions. Oh man. This is like years. His of, whole career. Yes. Of like beautiful research and also friendships with these other researchers. Yeah. He has a personal relationship with Colin Trevarthan. Trevarthan. What the? Like. Yeah. <laughs> and and for that, and like Dan Siegel, what? <laughs> um, like that to me just like fills me with so much hope. Like uh, I, I get it hope. that there were so many like moments where Shore is probably like, this makes no sense. Yeah. And like what I am finding, like what? Select all, and, delete. Yeah. <laughs> delete. And also like, this is not in line at all. Like. 40 years ago, not in line at all with psychoanalysis. Right. But then it gets to this point in research where it's like, oh my God, this is all coming together. So as a researcher and as a reader, I like, yeah, I think if I'm taking it from that lens, my body just feels like hope. Yeah. I love that. Um, for me, I will say yes. And, um, a lot of emotion. Um, Finding something like this to me, um, it's like finding a whole group of puzzle pieces, mm. not just one puzzle piece, mm. but a entire bag full that's already like pre put together. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I already found all of these and I'm giving it to you yeah. because I know you're working on the same puzzle. Yeah. And so here, I, I want you to have it. Yeah. Put it together with the pieces that you have and keep going. Yeah. Keep looking. And can we just talk about how this is published in Frontiers in Psychology? Frontiers in Psychology. Which is free. Open access. Open access. Go read it, please. Yes. Like, so many, yeah, I love that analogy of giving the puzzle pieces. Man. And, and oh, I was just going to say, like, to hear you even talk about that, I know that in your mind, one of the things you're thinking of is this is beyond just a cognitive game. Oh, man. Like these pieces have real life impact into your day-to-day life. And in that way is somewhat of like a gospel, is a sort of good news yes. for people to hear. You and Gellion. Yeah. De-shaming, de-stigmatizing facts about your brain, your yeah. system, and the way experience and yourself is organized. That's right. And like that is like it's not Getting just a game. Man. Yeah, dude. I'm very emotional right now. Synchronized. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. And yeah. And to me this is just what it's all about. You know, theory is not a cognitive game. It is an embodied mystery yeah which the the psychoanalyst like 
get. They get it. They've been stigmatized, but they get that theory has to be grounded in observation and reality as far as experience. Yeah. A dance. Yeah. A dance with a human. Mm-hmm. Grounded in a dance. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I know the end of this got nice and um, emotional personal. on this end and personal, but I hope that um, even for you that provokes something and that you notice that and uh, provide something to take away for yeah. you. Um, and just know Caleb and I are probably going to high five and hug. Oh, for sure. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. Um, yeah. That's how it goes, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Again, uh, if you want to connect with us further, uh, uh, engage with us on Patreon. Um, take a look at those retreats if the, that's something of interest to you. Um, consultation. If I got trainings and, coming up. Yeah, trainings. If this stuff like just blows your mind and you're like, please like, tell me how this relates to my specific clients. Please reach out. We would love to talk about. Let's you know, hear the story of your And case. we're going to not be a master in the con- consultation room. We are going to co-create the meaning with you yes, and not be like, here's all the answers to your client. We're, we want to join you. It's in about that. intersubjective discovery. Yes. Um, which we believe is so beautiful and drives everything we do. So um, thanks for listening and uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.